And the other thing that I learned uh, at wine school was, or realized, is just how male-dominated the wine industry is in France. Yep. And so that's why I ended up specializing in champagnes made by women. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Fabulously Delicious is the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, a French dish, an ingredient or French cuisine cooking technique, and we learn about it from a special guest who's an expert on that topic. My guests are all about French food. Either they cook it, they produce it, they talk, write or photograph it. But above all, they love it. Champagne we covered with the wonderful Champagne Dame earlier in the podcast. But like a lot of things in France, so complex is Champagne that there's so much more to discover about it. So today we are chatting with Cynthia Coutu about something close to Cynthia's heart, the women of Champagne. It's a subject that's very important and has much history and is also very relevant for today. So sit back, pop that cork and pour yourself a glass of bubbly if you have one. Turn up the volume as you're in for another fabulous episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app everyone and let's get chatting with Cynthia Coutu. Cynthia Kutu, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Now, did I get your pronunciation of your name right then? It was the closest possible. (laughs) (laughs) It's French-Canadian, is that right? Yes, it is. Right. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see. I'll I'll hopefully get it right throughout the recording of this. Uh, Cynthia, your mum's father, your grandfather, I think that would be, uh, was a cook in the Canadian Navy during World War II. Did uh, he tell you or did your mum tell you anything about the experiences he had in that time? Um, I stumbled upon his recipe books and my mind was blown. Like if you looked at the proportions involved in feeding uh, a large number of men on a boat and like the poor guy who had to peel the potatoes, it was insane. And I talked to him a lot about his experience. I regret not talking to him more about the war experience, but he he told me that the cook in the Navy made it or made it or how do you say that in English? You make it or break it um, in terms of the morale of the uh, the, the Navy uh, sailors. Um, and he, he was a nutcase. Uh, he had a great sense of humor. He used to uh, um, not only feed very tasty food, but also entertain. And I remember my mom sending me an article uh, that she stumbled upon uh, in the archives about uh, how appreciated he was um, as, a, as, a, as a cook. I can imagine. I mean, it would be, I mean, it's a stressful situation just being in World War II in the Navy, uh, let alone on a boat. But then also, you know, you'd have to, I can imagine just the logistics of rationing. Like, how do you know how long until it is that you, because it's not like it's a cruise ship where it's for 14 days and you're going to arrive at the next destination or destinations along the way to fill up the boat. Like, he might be gone, he might have to make this last for two weeks or a month. 
before they get more supplies. My understanding was his outings were sort of scheduled and programmed. So he had a, a pretty good idea. Like they were missions. He was on a Corvette. And I, I remember one story where they had to fish some Germans out of the water and he wasn't too pleased about that. But I think it was for specific amounts of times because he used to come and go on a regular basis. So I think he had a um, pretty good idea of how what supplies he needed for the, the mission. Do you know that if he joined the Navy uh, to become a chef or was he a chef before he joined the Navy? He was an orphan. Um, his parents, if I remember correctly, his parents died during the famous Halifax explosion. And he ended up being an orphan and very poor. And my understanding was he joined the Navy because that was one of the, the outs possible, so to speak, to, to make a living. So he was in the Navy before becoming a cook. When you were growing up, who cooked in your house? My mum. <laughs> Definitely uh, my mum. And so um, she comes from a family of seven. So my grandfather, not only did he cook large portions <laughs> for, <laughs> for the boat, the but Navy, also the family. <laughs> exactly. And he did all the cooking at home. Oh, um, wow. My grandmother uh, worked. She ran the telephone office out of her home. And and so my grandfather did all the, the cooking and he taught the, um, all of his kids how to cook, but uh, very generous portions. So uh, my mom did all the cooking and she, I guess the secrets that he passed on to her were how to make things really tasty. You know, like even if it was just, um, I remember at one point, one of our favorite dishes when we were small children was, my mom called it mush. <laughs> <laughs> but it was mashed potatoes and ground uh, beef. Um, and she'd, she'd sneak in um, mashed vegetables like carrots or turnips and things like that. But even something as simple as that, she would make it really tasty. And she was very proud of her gravies. And he taught her how to make gravies and how to scratch the pan and we, uh, things fabulous. like that. Fabulous. Uh, what was your fa – like you've mentioned the potato dish, but what was – so was that your favorite thing or what was your no. favorite thing that your mum would make? <laughs> so my mother ended up marrying a French-Canadian and – uh, she had to learn French Canadian recipes, uh, through my maternal grandmother, uh, paternal grandmother, sorry. And French Canadian cooking is very different than English Canadian cooking. Um, there's quite a few traditional recipes and one is called tourtière and it's a meat pie and every family has their own recipe and it depends on where you come from. So my uh, paternal grandparents were from a small village outside of Montreal. And so uh, their recipe involved ground, one-third ground beef, one-third ground veal, and one-third ground pork. And 
Um, what makes it different is that you add cloves and cinnamon. And so it, when you're cooking it, it just fills the, uh, the house with these gorgeous, and I make it here in Paris and my concierge, whenever I make it, she knows she comes and knocks on the door. You're, she says, you're making that meat pie again. <laughs> um, but, Fabulous. So if you come from the, the north of Quebec in the middle of the woods, you, instead of using ground beef, veal and pork, you'll use game. And it'll be more of a deep dish, like so. It'll be with uh, with deer, with uh, with um, venison, uh, all of those um, things that you can hunt and and, and catch. Um, and it'll be more of a deep dish. And what kind of pastry was it that they were using? Uh, uh, flaky pie pastry. French Canadian food is different to the Anglais Canadian food, but how is it different to French food in general? The spices, I guess, like um, using the cloves and the um, cinnamon with the meat um, isn't just for the tourtière. They use it for another recipe called ragout, which is from pork shanks that you boil forever um, and you make meatballs out of the uh, the meat from the, the pork shank. And then you have a sauce that has... Um, cinnamon and cloves in it. So I guess it's more of the, um, the, the spices that you use and of course, maple syrup. And we don't, um, use it just for, uh, putting on pancakes. Um, we actually cook with it. For example, if you want to glaze, um, uh, ham, we'll use, uh, um, uh, maple syrup instead of, uh, regular sugar, I guess. So it's using a lot of the local, um, local foods. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, then please share it around with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Leave me a review, a five-star one. Well, that would be great, especially because that will help me get more fabulous guests for you to listen to and learn more from about French food, of course. So don't forget, share me around with your friends and family. I love to be shared around. And let's get back to more Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. You're now in the wine industry, but is that what you studied at school? No, I have one of those zigzag um, journeys in life. And sometimes I get invited to, uh, to give talks at my daughter's school about my journey. Um, so I went to a, a French lycée in, in Canada. Um, so I have the same education as any French as my neighbors. And everyone was sort of a doctor, lawyer, and I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I studied biology as pre-med and then realized that my grades weren't good enough to get accepted in med school and thought, okay, what do I want to do? And I decided to take six months off to figure out what I wanted to do. And the director of the biology department said, don't leave biology completely come and work for me for six months during your break um, and see if there's something else in biology that interests you. And he was a botanist classifying plants. 
so I was like, so I worked for him and I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. And I, during those six months, I decided I wanted to do photography. Um, and I, but I didn't have a portfolio. So I basically, I applied for, um, a photography, a fine arts program at the University of Ottawa with no portfolio and I schmoozed my way in and because it was something that I really wanted to do I ate slept smelled uh, photography for four years and the art world in Canada is quite incestuous because it's so small so if you want to survive as an artist you need to teach, you need to uh, write, you need to be an art, uh, an art critic, and everyone writes about everyone. And I wasn't impressed with the caliber of my professors at university. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to um, go down that road, I'm going to go to Paris to get uh, a master's in art history. And when I graduated from my four-year program, I I lucked out because in order to graduate, all the students had to have a, a final exhibition, a piece. And that year, there was a, a contest and a prize for the best artwork. And it was a trip to Paris uh, with hotel and um, plane and all of that and some money. And I won. And because it was a trip to Paris, there was someone from the French embassy on the jury. And when she found out that I was going to do a master's, she said, well, come see me next week. I'll give you a grant. So I ended up with a grant, the prize, and uh, came to, uh, to Paris. It was um, all meant to be. Yeah. And then I um, studied art history here and fell in love with uh, wine and food. And I was like, I need to find a way to stay. And, um, while I was a starving student, I used to um, hang the exhibitions for the, uh, art shows at the Canadian cultural center. And one day for a vernissage for an opening, one of the waitresses called in sick and they begged and pleaded with me to, um, waitress for the vernissage. And I had sworn I'd never waitress again because I did that to put myself through university. And I snapped one day. I just, I, just, I cannot serve another plate of chicken wings. I can't do this. And, but I needed the money. So I said, okay. And then I got uh, into this sort of Canadian embassy cocktail network. And I worked for uh, a lot of the, uh, the cocktails. And one day I was complaining about my financial situation and someone said, oh, there's a job opening at, uh, in the economic division as a um, executive, uh, assistant. And I was like, I'd never been a secretary, but I figured I've got a good head on my shoulders. So I had two days to apply and redid my CV to make it look like I had more office experience. And, uh, um, the deadline was the Friday, and then on the Monday, I was waitressing for this goodbye party for the number two of the Canadian Embassy. And uh, he asked me what I was planning on doing with my life. And I said, well, either a PhD or I've applied for a job in the economic uh, division. 
And he said, really, I'll introduce you to the guy who's hiring. So I got um, pre-interviewed in the kitchen. And then um, <laughs> the next day I went in, uh, uh, I got a call and went uh, from the HR department and went in for a proper interview. They gave me the, the job. And so for a couple of years, um, I, I worked on mostly logistics for G7 summits or for high-level visits, like when the prime minister would come or the governor general. And I've got great food and wine stories uh, from that time. <laughs> I, was, right. I was paid to go try uh, restaurants in Lyon during the <sighs> G7 summit. Um, oh, I stop got, you making me jealous now. <laughs> I, got, uh, I got tipsy with the governor general who was on a, an official visit. Everyone from the embassy and the governor general's delegation went out for dinner, but I had to stay behind. And I was uh, checking the media clippings, Telex is coming in, and all of a sudden the governor general comes down in his bathrobe and <laughs> he had pajamas on underneath. And he asked me who, if there was anything that I needed to give him in terms of information. And I gave him what he needed. And then he started asking me who I was, where I came from. And he was from the Maritimes as well. And he goes, yeah, Cynthia, you like wine? I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> he said Jacques Chirac had delivered a couple of cases of wine to his room. He said, hang on, I'll go get a bottle. I'll come back. We ended up polishing off two bottles, sitting there, him telling me all kinds of stories about he had, um, he collected tomato plants from all over the world. Um, <laughs> and, and so I had fabulous opportunities to meet fabulous Canadians uh, while I was doing that. Where did you start to learn about wine? So uh, after the embassy, I ended up um, getting it, uh, at the embassy, I ended up getting into um, the internet. It was like, that's how old I am. It was just starting back then. Oh, hey. <laughs> I'm, I'm that old too, so please. Um, and I, I designed and launched a new website for the Canadian embassy and then I was evaluating a website for um, young Canadians looking for a job. And there was a section working in an international organization. To make a long story short, I ended up working at the OECD, which is an international organization based here in Paris, managing their digital communications. And a couple of days before my 50th birthday, um, I was informed that uh, I was getting reorged out. And I, I didn't see that one coming, to be honest. Um, I had given them advice about the reorg and that they should split my job in three, which they did, but they didn't leave me anything. So I was at 50 and it turned out it was a blessing, not even in disguise, because I was pretty miserable the last few years I was there. I was dealing with a lot of politics, big egos, and I wasn't very happy. Um, but I needed to find a way to stay in France because I have a, a daughter and I didn't want to have to uh, go back to Canada with her and split her up with her from her father. And um, I had semi-diplomatic status from working at the 
Canadian Embassy and the OECD. And so I knew that I had 10 months to figure out uh, what to do before I had to give back my uh, diplomatic card. And my sister, who lives here um, in Paris, uh, said, well, wine, wine's your passion. Why don't you do something related to wine? So that was the little light bulb that went off in my head. Like, yeah, I know I want to do something about wine, but I didn't know what. And I thought I knew a lot about wine, but I figured it would be better if I had a piece of paper to prove it. Um, so I did some research and I, because I didn't know if I was going to be staying in France for how long, um, I went for the wine and spirit education trust program, um, because it's like the gold standard in the wine industry for people who don't necessarily want to be a sommelier. They want to work in the wine industry, but not necessarily on the floor. We often talk about wine and and it's how it's almost bred into the French, you know, from a very young age here in France. Um, is that the same in Canada? Do you grow up at an early age with wine and the no. knowledge that comes from that? No, not at all. No, um, my family only had wine uh, on special occasions, uh, like family reunions and birthdays and stuff like that. It wasn't something we had every day um, with dinner. That said, now, <laughs> I don't know if it's my influence or not, but now it's part of the everyday, the everyday life. What is the Canadian wine industry like? Like, do they actually produce good wines? Oh, yeah. Um, and, but a lot, most people, I, wine professionals know about it, but um, wine lovers, not necessarily because the production is so small. And it's mostly developed since I left, um, but um, there, are main, there are three main wine regions um, out in BC in the Okanagan Valley, um, yeah. around Niagara, uh, in, in Ontario, and in Nova Scotia. And uh, in Nova Scotia, they're, they're really known for their sparkling wines. Uh, they win medals in a lot of uh, international wine competitions. Um, Gordon Ramsay has won uh, a sparkling wine from Nova Scotia on his uh, wine menu in his fancy restaurant. Um, the, and it's not very well known uh, because the production is so small. It's like teeny tiny producers, but it's what's called cool climate wines. Uh, makes sense coming from Canada, um, but they they win uh, they win medals in a lot of international competitions. So um, you know when I travel, I drink local. So if anyone travels to Canada, you need to try Canadian wines. We are going to talk about the women of Champagne shortly, but with regards to Champagne itself, what do you love most about Champagne? So you asked me earlier how was it like going to wine school? Um, there's two things that I learned uh, from going to wine school. One was the more you learn about wine, the more you realize there is to learn about wine because it touches on everything, history, geography, culture, chemistry, geology. And so I decided to um, specialize in sparkling wine more as an intellectual challenge because it's, it's the most complex of all the wines. 
You know, it's a blend of grape varieties, a blend of terroirs, a blend of years. And there's just so much diversity, so many different styles uh, of champagne that I, I know that on my tombstone, it'll be written still learning about champagne. Because I love the diversity and, you know, like now a wine from another region that's just one grape variety from one region, from one year, uh, I find boring. So, um, and the other thing that I learned uh, at wine school was, or realized, is just how male dominated the wine industry is in France. And so that's why I ended up specializing in champagnes made by women. Why do you think that we all love champagne so much? Because it turns an ordinary moment into an extraordinary moment. You know, like I'm I'm renowned for popping a cork after I finally get around to vacuuming, you know. <laughs> it's like <laughs> uh, I love the celebratory side of champagne, you know, and you can celebrate anything. You know, I celebrate vacuuming, um, and I love I love that that celebratory side of it. Are you coming to France soon for a holiday or weekend away, or do you have plans or dreaming, but you just don't know what to do? Just overwhelmed with all the options, or been so many times before, you want a new take on France and places to go, people to see. Well, I can help you with that. Jump on my website, andrewfirefabulously.com, and check out my itinerary service. You can book in a 45-minute Zoom call with me, that's right, live with me directly, and then once we've discussed what you want to do, how long you want to come for, etc., and we'll really go into it, then I'll create a fabulous itinerary personalised just for you. I'll help with places to go, things to do, hidden secrets, tips the local would know, restaurants, food recommendations, as well as help with any bookings, etc., that you might need during your stay. So, what are you waiting for? Go to andrewpryorfabulously.com, itinerary services, and book in your call with me now. On to today's topic. It's uh, women of champagne here in France. Uh, I want to talk about the history a little bit uh, later, but now, right now, are there many champagne houses and brands that are run by women? So it's really hard to get official statistics um, because the French um, government doesn't allow collecting gender data. And the last survey done was in 2010, and it was for all wineries in France, and 27% were owned by women. Okay, But that doesn't tell you what they do. Okay, Your name can be on the ownership piece of paper, but it doesn't um, describe your role. And I contacted all the the trade union of the champagne houses, the trade union of the growers, and um, no one could give me any numbers. But what I did is um, the trade union for the houses. There's about uh, 320 or 340 champagne houses. So a house is when they buy most of their grapes from growers because they don't have enough of their own, okay? So that's what defines a champagne house. Um, When you look on the back of a bottle, um, every company has a number, 
and in front of that number there are two initials and a champagne house um, has the initials NM, Négociant Manipulant. It means that they negotiate, they buy the grapes and then manipulate them. A grower champagne, for example, um, will have the initials RM, Récoltant Manipulant. It means that they harvest their own grapes and manipulate them. And there's about 4,500 uh, grower, grower producer. So I don't know them all. And then you have co-ops. Uh, and that the initials are CM and there's about 120, um, co-ops. Okay. So there's three main producers, a, a fourth type also buyer's brand, like, you know, like when rock stars or movie stars, they don't grow the grapes. They don't make the champagne. They just slap their brand on it. And that will say, M.A. for Marc Acheteur. Okay. So, so getting back to the, um, there's a trade union for the growers and a trade union for the houses. Okay. And um, on their website, they have the names of the president, the director, the seller masters. Um, and there's, a, there's about, uh, on the website, there's about 100 names. Okay. So, it's a small sample, but I went through all of them and identified which ones were men and which ones were women. And I can say that um, 18% of the houses have a female seller master. Okay? And 28% of the houses have a woman on their executive board. So either as the president or director, CEO, um, so on. So that's still, there's a, what I call a glass champagne bottle ceiling in terms of the, uh, the women. And there are some that are also, it's in, where you need more is in the decision-making roles in the trade unions, for example. Um, there, are, there aren't that many uh, women at that level. Um, but it, it takes at least a generation for seller masters to change. You know, like usually when you're, you, you work as a seller master, you stay for a long time. So you have to wait. <laughs> you have to wait. But there are more and more women that are graduating um, from uh, enology schools um, more than 50% of the graduates are women. What is a seller master? So that, for those of us that don't know. Uh, so it depends on the size of the house. Sometimes they can be just responsible for what happens in the cellars. If it's a big house, you've got someone in charge of the vineyards. So you've got, in a sense, a director of the vineyards, a director of the cellars. And the director of the sellers is the seller master and they um, decide, uh, well, I mean, their main function is the blending of the different wines. Like champagne's made uh, in, in two stages, so to speak, well, two fermentations. And um, the first fermentation takes place right after um, harvest. And the second uh, fermentation so, you know, this year harvest is in, uh, it's, it's just started in the south of, uh, south of Champagne. Um, and 
by law in Champagne, like they've got a, a rule book about this thick. You can't see on the screen, but it's it's a lot of rules and regulations. And you're not allowed to start blending until January 1st, okay? because they want to make sure that you know what your grapes had in them in terms of aromas and flavors and to see how that base wine that you made with the first fermentation, how it turns out. Okay? And so the cellar master is in charge of deciding, tasting all the different wines from all the different grape varieties from the subregions. Um, you know, you can have up to 70 different uh, wines uh, to taste for your, for your blending phase. And then deciding, okay, were the grapes good enough to make a vintage? Um, and then they'll set aside some of the, 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 the wines to make a vintage champagne. And then the non-vintage or multi-vintage uh, blends. And then to set aside some uh, reserve wine for the following years. And so they, they're the ones who do all the blending, the smelling, the tasting. Um, this, you know, like, are we going to um, age uh, vinify in oak? In stainless steel, how long are we going to leave the bottles down there to age after the the blending? And so they they're the they're like the cooks, so to speak, uh, in the cellars. Um, this is going to be a hard one, I'm sure, but uh, I do want to see if you can narrow it down to just one. But is there somebody that is uh, you know that you'd like to highlight that's in working in Champagne, whether they're a cellar master or they're the owner or, or president of a of a house, uh, that's a woman that's doing fantastic things and why? So I don't think I would narrow it to one person, one woman. There are two associations that I really respect. One is called uh, La Transmission, the transmission. And it was created by two women who really struggled as women in Champagne. Uh, one is the former CEO of Krug Champagne, Maggie Enriquez, and Anne Malassagne, who is co-owner of Champagne AR Le Noble. And they got uh, nine women together from different subregions, different roles. You know, so you have cellar masters, you have in charge of sales, you have uh, growers. And so different ages, different subregions, different roles, and they get together um, on a regular basis to support each other. And every six months or so, they do workshops to share their knowledge with uh, wine professionals. And so you've got uh, Vitaly Tétinger, who's the new CEO of Tétinger Champagne. Uh, you've got Mélanie Tarlan uh, from Tarlan. She's a grower. Uh, Charlene Drapier from Drapier. And so they're a fabulous group of women who get together to support each other and to share their knowledge with champagne lovers. So that's one association. Another one is called Les Fabuleuses, uh, which is a, a word game instead of, because uh, bulle means bubbles. Uh, so fab bubbles, fabulous bubbles. Oui, we like this. <laughs> and they're seven growers uh, who get together and they actually made, so they each make their own champagne, but 
they made a blend using juice from each of the seven growers. And to me, that's the ultimate collaboration. Um, so yeah. And what's that called? Les Fabuleuses. Uh, they're we need to get them to be a sponsor of Fabulously Delicious, I think. <laughs> the name says it all. Is this different to other wine areas and regions of France, the collaboration of women and the idea of women in France? I mean, in Lyon with food, you know, it's very well known, the Mère de Lyonnaise uh, for food. But is this specific to Champagne, the women of Champagne, or is this uh, all throughout other wine industries in France? I've... I've noticed that most wine regions have uh, an association of female winemakers. Like there's Femme de Bourgogne. Uh, each each region pretty much has uh, an association of uh, female winemakers. They because they need to support <laughs> each other basically. Do you think that women bring innovation to the champagne industry? Historically, they certainly have. I don't know yeah. if that's your segue to uh, go into the... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't, but we can touch <laughs> on that. That's not a problem at all. What What have women done that historically has changed the champagne industry? So during um, the 18th century, it was uh, hit and miss, okay, because they, they didn't understand the science, uh, like the role of yeast. Um, and, and during the 18th century, it was... Mostly the courtesans at court who played, they were like the, the first champagne ambassadors, you know. And only 3% of the wines made in champagne in the 18th century had bubbles. Okay, so um, it was the, uh, the favorite, the um, headmistress of the king who insisted on serving champagne at all the dinners and the parties. So they, they played an important role as the first champagne ambassadors. But during the 19th century, when Pasteur came along and industrialization, you went from 10 champagne houses in the 18th century to 300. Okay. And that's when you had most of the innovations. Right? And, um, Veuve Clicquot, of course, the most famous widow, um, she was responsible, I'd say, for three main innovations. One is um, uh, vintage champagne. There was uh, Halley's Comet during harvest in, I can't remember if it was 1810 or 1811. And it's a good omen to have a comet during uh, harvest, whether you're a grape uh, grower or a potato grower. And so she decided to market a champagne only using the grapes from the comet harvest. Yeah. So um, another is the riddling table. Uh, the myth is that, uh, so a, to riddle is to twist the bottles to eventually end up with all the yeast in the neck of the bottle to be able to remove the yeast so that you don't have cloudy champagne, basically. And uh, she felt that the riddling was getting uh, slowing down the production process, and she was like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And she was in France, and so her team said, no, mais non, madame, no. And she came up with the idea of taking the kitchen table, drilling holes in it, and then putting the neck of the bottle in the holes to be able to riddle the bottles quicker and uh, going from horizontal to vertical position. So she invented, she kept that a secret 
because there was so much competition between the champagne houses. She got her team to swore to secrecy. And then the um, other innovation is what's called blended rosé. Um, so up until Mad- Madame Clicquot um, used to make pink champagne by using red grapes and letting the juice macerate for a short amount of time between the white juice and the red skin color in the skin bleeds into the white juice and makes it pink. Okay. But it's a tricky way of making pink champagne. Cause if you fall asleep on the job, you end up with red wine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. So she was like, there's gotta be a better way of doing this. And she came up with the idea of making white wines from white grapes and red grapes, because if you take a white grape and a red grape and you press them gently, they both produce white juice. Okay. So she continued to make white wines from white grapes and red grapes. And then in parallel, she made red wine. And at the blending phase, she blended white wine and red wine to make it pink. Okay. And that's called a blended rosé. And, um, I'd say today, maybe 85 to 90% of the Rosé Champagne on the market use that method. And um, uh, so those are three important innovations. Um, about a couple of years later, uh, Madame Pommery, who was also a widow, um, she up until Madame Pommery, Champagne was... Um, mostly served for dessert. And uh, the Russians used to like drinking it on the rocks. And at the dosage phase, there was like 150 to 200 grams of sugar added. And so it was very, very sweet. And Madame Pomery wanted to develop and target the English market. And they preferred drier um, alcohol in general and so she decided to make a dry champagne. And her, um, there were a couple of people experimenting with the concept, but she was the first to have a commercial success. And um, it was called Brut because a lot of people found it was brutal to have such a dry champagne. Um, but, you know, she, her team, again, told her, this is crazy. No one's going to drink dry champagne. And she said, we're going to leave the grapes longer on the vine so that they have more natural sugar. And we're going to age the bottles longer in the cellar so that we don't need to add as much sugar. And so it was because of Madame Pomery that champagne moved from being a super sweet dessert champagne to more of an aperitif uh, champagne before the meal. So right there, you've got four innovations, uh, two women that, um, you know, that are really important. Lovers of French food, wait no more. I've got the French food cooking experience just for you. Come join me in Montmorillon for one and three day cooking experiences that'll take in French markets, as well as visits to local food producers, lots of cooking and eating, of course, I mean, you can't do a cooking class without lots of eating, with the occasional glass of wine as well. But above all, good company and lots of fun. Book your class with me via andrewpriorfabulously.com. But hurry, places are filling fast. 
It is often in the past that the a widow would take on the reins from their husbands,、uh, and that's to run the houses、uh, in that day. But there were、um, people that started women that started from scratch, right, back in those days. Nope. No. A single、oh. a single woman. A single woman, was right, not, was not allowed to have her own bank account or her own business. Ah, and so only widows were allowed to do business. But I did read somewhere,、um, and this is where my question was coming from. I I read that there was a widow that set up the, her own house rather than inventing.、Uh, sorry, she set up her own house rather than taking over the reins of her husband. Yes, but she had to be a widow. She had to be a widow, so you、yeah. couldn't be a single lady doing it. Beyonce、no. couldn't have done it before、no. she got married. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yes, I yeah I posted about her. It was、um, Madame Henriot,、um, who her husband didn't have a, a champagne house, but when he died, because she became a widow, she could create her own business. Which so all the other widows like Vavricot, Pomery, Laurent Perrier, their husbands had champagne houses that the widows took over after their husbands died. And they really grew the businesses,、um, but Madame Henriot is an exception that she didn't take over her husband's. She waited for him to die, and then she created her、right. own. <laughs> I also read on your Instagram, actually,、uh, which is a fabulous Instagram account.、Uh, can I just say about the magnum effect? What is this? Okay,、um, so. Uh, on, if you read my post, I said magnum effect doesn't mean the wow factor because of the size of the bottle.、Um, if you have a, a regular standard size bottle beside a magnum bottle, okay, the magnum is twice the size. But if you look up at the top,、um, it's the same amount of air between. Uh, the top of the bottle and in the neck. Okay, and so when the bottles are aging in the cellars, you have the contact between the wine, the yeast, and the oxygen, the air in the bottle. Okay, and the ratio is ideal in a Magnum versus a standard bottle. Okay, the the ratio between the the air, the yeast, the wine, and the Magnum. And it usually it takes longer to age, but it's slower. And it、um, I did a masterclass. I can't remember which with which cellar master, but he basically served us. I think we were fifty wine professionals in the room, forty eight men and two women sitting at the back, and、um, it was the exact same blend age for the like everything was the same. One glass was from a standard bottle, and the other from、uh, the Magnum, and it was to smell and taste the difference between the two, and there was a difference. Okay, so usually what I I I tell my followers or my whoever participates in my、uh, workshops in Paris、um, that if you're if you're having a party、uh, and you know you're going to be serving、uh, several champagne bottles, it's better. Quality 
to serve one Magnum versus two standard bottles. How long should we actually keep champagne bottles? So champagne is different than other wines in the sense that all the aging is done for you in the cellars. So when you buy, when you buy a bottle, you're meant to drink it right away. The rule of thumb is uh, you should drink it within two or three years of it being disgorged. Cellar masters will tell you that um, you can keep a bottle for the same number of years that it's spent in the cellar. Okay, So if it's spent three years aging in the cellar, then you should drink it three years after it's been disgorged. If it's spent 10 years, uh, like if it's a Comte de Champagne from Titinger that spends 12 years in the cellar, then you could uh, keep it for 12 years. And the risk of keeping it too long is that you lose the bubbles. What about the French? Do they recognise the role that women have played in the champagne industry? Do they celebrate it? Uh, not really. Really? <laughs> um, I mean, the I find that a lot of the the growers and the houses are very insular. They know a lot about their own history and their own way of making champagne, but they don't necessarily have the big picture. Um, like, for example, I'm amazed at um, how many people in Champagne still think that Don Perignon uh, invented bubbles. Uh, he he never made sparkling wine, um, and so, so who invented bubbles? It's a team effort over 200 years. Um, but that's a whole separate podcast. All right, we'll go into that another time. We'll have to get you back. Before I get to my last question, I did want to ask you, so you mentioned uh, a couple of times now that you've got a teenage daughter. Do you think that she recognises and understands the importance of, you know, what you're doing, highlighting the women of Champagne? Um, well, you know, the relationships between <laughs> teenage daughters and their mothers can be tricky sometimes. Um, she's gone through different phases where she's like, I don't want to hear another word about champagne, but, <laughs> uh, she is now at the stage where she drinks champagne and impresses her friends with her knowledge. Uh, so I think she's at the stage now where she's like, ah, my mom knows a lot about champagne. And, um, yes, like when she, I, um, I've been uh, interviewed on on TV and in the New York Times and and things like that, and so she sees that I get recognition for uh, what I've created, and so she she is proud of her mama. You take many people, as you mentioned, to Champagne on tours. Where would be the one place that you would recommend that people must go to when they visit Champagne? <laughs> I mean. <sighs> I'm going to narrow it down because you gave me three, four options for the last time I said one thing. So I'm going to say <laughs> just one because people have to come on your tours to do yeah. the other things. So I just want one. So um, in 2015, the hillsides, houses, and cellars were inscribed on world uh, UNESCO's World Heritage List. Okay. So, I mean, I'm Canadian. I love nature. And so... I would have a preference for the growers in the hillsides where you you get to meet the person who grew the grapes, who made the champagne and drink their champagne with them with the view of the vineyards. Um, Fabulous. 
most people, though, what they do is they go to Reims or Epernay and visit the cellars of a big champagne house like Verpico or Moët et Chandon. But you, you see the bling bling, the Disneyland side of champagne when, when you do that. Olivia, thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. So I've got one final question for you, and that is the question I ask everybody that's been on the show. What is, to you, the most fabulous thing about France? Uh, The fact that you can never get enough of it. Um, In the sense that You know, there's always a new restaurant, a new dish, a new wine, a new... You can never feel that you know it all in terms of food and wine. No, that's a great answer. And I think that uh, our listeners are never going to be able to get enough of you. I think that uh, it's been a fabulous chat. We might have to get you to come back on to talk about other things to do with champagne uh, in the future of Fabulously Delicious. So, Cynthia, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for inviting me. And onwards and upwards like a champagne bubble. Fabulous. Uh, Cynthia, where can people find you? On You're on the internet, etc. Where can people find you? Um, so my company that I created is called Delectable, which is like a, a word, French word game. Delect means to savor and bulle means bubbles. And so my Facebook, my website, my Instagram account are all Delectable. Fabulous. I will put that in the show notes for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. All the details of Cynthia's fabulous tours of Champagne and France are in the show notes for this episode. That's it for another fabulous episode. This week's episode was supposed to be about the wines of Languedoc region, but that'll be next week's episode now. Merci beaucoup and see you next week. Bon app, everyone. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!